0: Every interview with a rapist that I have seen or read suggests to me that rapists have mixed motives and that part of the mixture is sex. But since motives are inherently non-observable, it is always possible to interpret Rapist statements almost any way one chooses. Consider the following excerpts from an interview with a white, 49-year-old male of lower-class Southern background who'd committed four rapes. Fremont, 1975. Begin of excerpt. At that particular time, it gave me a sense of power a sense of accomplishing something that I felt I haven't ha- didn't have the ability to get. You see something or somebody that you want and you know that under normal circumstances you wouldn't be able to attract this person, so you take her. This was something I wanted and I felt that I would never be able to make this And I've always been told that this was the thing to have. You know, I wanted this particular kind of person. She was a college girl. But I felt that my social station would make her reject me. And I just didn't feel that I would be able to make this person. I didn't know how to go about meeting her. Anyway, I waited one night until she'd gone to bed. After the lights were out. I just went into the window. She was frightened, of course, and I took advantage of her fright and raped her. Next excerpt. I wasn't concerned with her fear. I was only concerned with her body and being able to accomplish something that, given my upbringing, I couldn't accomplish any other way. I felt elated that I was able to accomplish what I wanted. It gave me power over her. Her feelings didn't mean anything to me at all. The thing that mattered was the thrill. I wasn't interested in whether someone else felt or what they felt. I was only interested in a selfish thing. All I wanted was a convenient place to get rid of my thing. Next excerpt. Some had to be coerced, but I didn't enjoy doing it. It wasn't a turn-on. I wanted things as easy as I could get them. And if they didn't give in, I would threaten. And if I had to go through a big hassle or exert any kind of violence, well, that was nothing for me then but i didn't like it. End of excerpt. When asked whether whether there was any difference between sex with a willing and an unwilling woman, the rapist replied, quote, "There was no difference at all." Unquote. Yet, presumably, because this man reported experiencing a sense of power during intercourse with women whom he could not have obtained in any other way, Fremont reaches the, to me astonishing, conclusion that, quote, sexual desire was not what motivated him to rape, unquote. Recently, I had the opportunity to see the videotape of a panel discussion with four convicted rapists at the Atascadero State Hospital. Habitual sex offenders with psychological problems are committed to this facility for an indefinite period. An inmate is released only when hospital authorities decide that he has been rehabilitated. In their initial rather formal statements in, the men stressed power, control, dominance, and violence as motives for rape, played down sexual impulses, implied that the responsibility for the rapes lay not with themselves, but with a society that glorifies machismo and objectifies women, and used the past tense when referring to the attitudes toward women which had allowed them to commit rape yet as the discussion wore on sex loomed larger and larger and it became clear that sexual desire for the victim inevitably preceded rape while the men expressed anger at a society that had judged them losers clearly Their status as losers entailed a felt deprivation of sexually desirable women. It is difficult to avoid the conclusion that the men's conscious attempts to emphasize their correct attitudes and to minimize their sexual impulsiveness were to some extent calculated to foster the impression that they no longer constituted a threat. Attitudes can change. Sexual impulses rarely do. Given the extremely high rate of recidivism recidivism for men released from a Tascadero State Hospital, fashionable efforts to minimize sexual motives for rape, if taken seriously by hospital authorities, might actually promote rape sex and power are not antithetic human motives are complex intertwined and often conflicting and perhaps no human act results from a single pure impulse surely no completed rape has ever occurred in which the rapist did not experience some sexual feeling and very likely no rape has ever occurred in which this was the only feeling the rapist experienced. Cohen et al., 1977, described the psychology of a group of rapists committed for an indefinite period to a Massachusetts treatment center because they were considered to be sexually dangerous. The authors emphasize that these men are not typical rapists, but a pathological extreme, yet even in this group, motives for rape were mixed, varying from almost purely sexual to almost purely predatory. Men and women have many motives for any sexual activity. It has yet to be shown that the ratio of sexual, other, motives is lower for men committing rape than it is for men engaging in sexual intercourse with consenting partners. What has, of course, been shown is that rape very rarely is a sexual experience for the victim. The major interest most of us have in rape is in its total elimination But rape also is problematical because its existence threatens the foundations of beliefs which many people not only cherish, but believe to be integral to the morality which underpins social order. Rape challenges the notion that men and women are fundamentally sexually similar. Women not only do not rape, But some, apparently, have great difficulty intuitively conceiving that a sexual desire could result in forcible rape. And rape challenges the notion that the living world is naturally harmonious, disrupted only by sin, weakness, or pernicious social systems. Many feminists call attention to male anger, As a motive in some rapes but fail to note that what is obvious in many interviews with rapists that the anger is partly sexual aimed at women because women incite ungratifiable sexual desire deliberately provocative behavior or dress is not the key issue women inspire male sexual desire simply by existing in the excerpts quoted above from an interview with the rapist general issues of social class and felt deprivation of power are apparent but these issues should not obscure the following facts the rapist wanted to copulate with the most physically attractive women His victims were attractive, not just to him, but to most men. One of the prerequisites of power and one of the male motives for obtaining power is access to scarce desired commodities, which, in our own, is, as in most societies, includes sexually desirable women. The rapist's belief that he could not have had sexual intercourse with its victims in any other way, probably was correct. Despite its manifest psychological and sociological complexity, rape constitutes further evidence that among humans, copulation is generally a female service, a service which can be given freely, traded, or taken by force. I do not believe that available data are even close to sufficient to warrant the conclusion that rape itself is a facultative adaptation in the human male. But the evidence does appear to support the views which ultimately are explicable by evolutionary theory that human males tend to desire no cost, impersonal copulations that there is nothing natural about the golden rule and hence that there is a possibility of rape wherever rape entails little or no risk. Despite its manifest psychological and sociological complexity, rape constitutes further evidence that among humans, copulation is generally a female service, a service which can be given freely, traded, or taken by force. I do not believe that available data are even close to sufficient to warrant the conclusion that rape itself is a facultative adaptation in the human male. But the evidence does appear to support the views, which ultimately are explicable by evolutionary theory, that human males tend to desire no cost impersonal copulations, that there is nothing natural about the golden rule, and hence that there is a possibility of rape, wherever rape entails little or no risk. Levine's 1977 general discussion of the control of sexual behavior in human societies strikes me as especially sensible. In his view, control can result either from structural barriers or from socialized inhibitions or both. A structural barrier, as I define it for sexual control processes, is a physical or social arrangement in the contemporary environment of the individual which prevents him from obtaining the sexual objective he seeks. A socialized inhibition is a learned tendency to avoid performing sexual acts under certain conditions structural barriers are part of the settlement pattern and group structure socialized inhibitions are the products of the socialization process which the individual undergoes in his early years Control of sexual behavior, as outlined by Levine, does not require that people learn to value each other's feelings as much as they value their own. Nor does Levine rely on the wishful thought that minor modifications in boys' socialization will produce men who want only the kinds of sexual interactions that women want. Levine implies that a human being is neither a tabula rasa nor a passive vehicle. Socialization toward a gentler, more humane sexuality entails inhibition of impulses that exist sui generis. These impulses are part of human nature because they proved adaptive over millions of years. Sexual customs apparently can change very rapidly, probably because human emotion is especially intense in sexual matters. But much change is merely superficial. Where males can win females' hearts through tears rather than spears, through a show of vulnerability rather than strut and swagger, many will do so. But the desires persist, and the game remains essentially the same. Given sufficient control over rearing conditions, no doubt males could be produced who would want only the kinds of sexual interactions that women want. But such rearing conditions might well entail a cure worse than the disease. nine test cases hormones and homosexuals diane keaton said sex without love is an empty experience woody allen says yes but as, yes but as empty experiences go it's one of the best i have argued that among humans There are species typical sex differences in sexual desires and dispositions and that these differences tend to be masked by the compromises heterosexual relations entail as well as by moral injunctions two independent kinds of evidence constitute test cases for this claim one in mammals, species-typical sex differences result from the action of hormones. Caspari, 1972. Hence, women who have been exposed to abnormally high levels of androgens, male sex hormones, should tend to exhibit a masculinized sexuality. Two, sexual relations among homosexuals are not constrained by the necessity to compromise male and female desires and dispositions. Hence, the sexual relations of lesbians should differ profoundly from the sexual relations of homosexual men. Hormones, a normal genetically male mammal develops male reproductive anatomy because the fetal testes secrete high levels of the androgen testosterone, which masculinizes specific target tissues during morphogenesis. In the absence of high levels of testosterone, a mammalian fetus, whether genetically female XX or genetically male XY, develops female reproductive anatomy. The masculinizing effects of testosterone apparently are not confined to reproductive anatomy but include certain brain structures as well. While many sex differences are not manifested until they are needed, at reproductive maturity, natural selection acts at all stages of the life cycle to promote reproductive success. And in many species, there are sex differences in behavior among immature animals that presage adult sex differences. Among rhesus monkeys, for example, immature males exhibit much higher frequencies of aggressive play, play fighting and play chasing, play initiation, mounting and threatening than immature females do, and when raised without mothers in groups of peers, males outrank females in the dominance hierarchy. In terms of ultimate causation, these sex differences, with the exception of mounting, almost certainly result from the far greater importance of aggressive skills to male than to female reproductive success. Aggressive play appears to function primarily as practice or training for adult aggression. In terms of proximate causation, these sex differences appear to originate in the prenatal masculinization of the male brain by testosterone. When pregnant rhesus females are injected with the androgen testosterone propionate, during the middle trimester of gestation, their genetically male offspring are normal since males are normally exposed to high levels of androgen in utero, but their genetically female offspring are gen- genitally masculinized, hermaphrodites. These pseudohermaphrodites females, exhibit f- frequencies of aggressive play, play initiation, mounting and threatening intermediate between those of normal males and normal females. Goy, 1968 And as adults exhibit higher levels of aggression than normal adult females do. The behavior of immature pseudo-hermaphrodite females is not masculinized completely either because testosterone propionate is not injected throughout the gestation period. And Resco 1972, or because of the high levels of progesterone, which antagonizes androgen activity, secreted by the placenta containing a female, Resco 1974, or for both reasons. Several lines of evidence indicate. That the masculine behaviors of normal immature recess males and pseudohermaphrodite females result from prenatal modification of the brain by testosterone not from postnatal hormonal action soon after birth male plasma testosterone falls to non-detectable amounts remaining low until puberty. Resco 1970. And males castrated at birth exhibit typical male behaviors as infants and juveniles. Goy 1968. Postnatal testosterone injections do not increase the frequency of aggressive play. Although females thus injected do become more aggressive and replace males in the top positions in the dominance hierarchy. The anatomical research of Goldman et al., 1974, confirms the existence of a sex difference in rhesus cortical development. These data do not prove that postnatal experience is unimportant in the development of rhesus Sex typical behavior. Goy, 1968. On the contrary, experience is crucial to the development of normal behavior in both sexes. But the evidence does suggest that experience acts on a brain already biased in a male or a female direction. As with rhesus monkeys, Immature human males typically are more aggressive and engage in more f- frequent and intense rough and tumble play than immature females do. While the nature and extent of sex differences among immature humans varies substantially across cultural perspective, sex differences in play and aggression appear to be Universal. In a detailed comparison of London and Bushman children, for example, many sex differences commonly reported in British and North American studies were not found among the Bushmen. Yet in both the London and Bushman exam- rather samples, boys were more aggressive than girls. And exhibit a higher frequency of rough-and-tumble play also North American boys notice and retain more details of modeled aggression and have more aggressive fantasies than girls do the greater aggressiveness of North American boys apparently is not the result of more frequent rewards for aggression on the contrary boys are more frequently and severely punished for aggression. The exposure of human female fetuses to excess androgen, the human counterpart of the experiments on rhesus monkeys cited above, has occurred in two ways. One, in the androgenital syndrome, AGS, the genetically defective adrenal cortex of the fetus does not Synthesize cortisol, but instead releases too much androgen. Two. Before the masculinizing side effects were discovered, synthetic progestins, androgen-like hormones, were like as a were given as a miscarriage preventative to some pregnant women with histories of spontaneous abortion. As with rhesus monkeys, prenatal exposure to excess androgen results in the genital masculinization, clitoral enlargement and some labial fusion of genetic female offspring. Such girls are normally, but not invariably, surgically feminized at birth. Their internal reproductive anatomy is normal and at puberty, Their ovaries produce female hormones which induce menstruation and feminize the body. Although, AGS girls require permanent cortisone therapy for normal feminization. Girls exposed to excess prenatal androgen have been found to differ from matched controls in several ways. Money and Er Erhard. 1972. Compared to controls, such girls exhibit higher levels of physical energy in rough outdoor play, are less interested in dolls and other typically female toys, and consistently prefer boys' toys, are more often self-identified and self identified by others as tomboys prefer boys to girls as playmates, prefer utilitarian boys' clothes to chic or fashionable girls' clothes and have little interest in hairdo or jewelry, are relatively indifferent to infants and are more concerned with a future career than with plans for being a wife and mother. This tomboyism Is not considered abnormally masculine by the girls or by their parents and does not interfere with the development of a female gender identity nor do the girls give evidence of homosexuality since the girls parents were aware that their daughters were born with masculinized genitals it is possible that tomboyism resulted from parental expectations rather than from masculinization of the female of the fetal brain. Yet this hypothesis has not been compelling to the investigators who actually conducted the interviews with the girls and their parents. Money and Earhart conclude, quote, the most likely hypothesis to explain the various features of Tomboyism in fetally masculinized genetic females, is that their tomboyism is a sequel to a masculinizing effect on the fetal brain. In accounting for the unproblematical nature of tomboyism, Money and Earhart note that, quote, so much gender identity differentiation remains to take place postnatally that prenatally determined traits or predispositions can be incorporated, or furthermore, the similarity of the human and the monkey findings and the universality of human male to female differences in play provide additional support for the brain masculinization hypothesis. The unproblematical nature of tomboyism, Money and Earhart note that quote, so much gender identity differentiation remains to take place postnatally that prenatally determined traits or dispositions can be incorporated into the postnatally differentiated schema whether it be masculine or feminine, unquote. Furthermore, the similarity of the human and the monkey findings and the universality of human male-female differences in play provide additional support for the brain masculinization hypothesis. These data do not, of course, Indicate that human males are inevitably violent, but they do suggest that the universal differences between men and women in fighting are presaged by corresponding differences between boys and girls, and that it may be easier for boys than for girls to learn fighting skills although the proximate causes of human and rhesus monkey violence are so different that they virtually defy comparison the ultimate causes of sex differences in violence probably are similar in these species in natural habitats human males and rhesus males fight far more frequently and intensely than females do because fighting typically has been far more important to male than to female reproductive success. And in both species, there are corresponding sex differences in juvenile play and aggression because males and females are training for different kinds of adult activities. The behaviors discussed so far are not specifically sexual And indeed, there is no obvious a priori reason to expect natural selection to have produced differences between boys and girls in sexuality, since children's sexual activities are non-reproductive. But there is evidence that certain aspects of adult male sexuality result from the effects of prenatal and post-pubertal androgens. Before the discovery of cortisone therapy, women with the adrenogenital syndrome were exposed to abnormally high levels of androgen throughout their lives, and clinical data on late-treated AGS women indicate clear-cut tendencies toward a male pattern of sexuality pubertal boy's wet dreams accompanied by strong visual imagery have no counterpart among pubertal girls when women do have strongly erotic dreams with orgasm such dreams tend to occur later in life and presumably require prior sexual experience but late treated ags women tended to have histories of dream eroticism paralleling those of normal males although the dream imagery was not homosexual but appropriate for heterosexual females in some cases cortisone therapy markedly reduced the frequency of such of such dreams in addition late treated ags women reported visual and narrative stimuli to be erotically arousing as often as touching and caressing. Such arousal was specifically genital, and in the absence of a partner, frequently led to masturbation. These women tended to exhibit clitoral hypersensitivity and an autonomous initiatory appetite of sexuality, which... Investigators have characterized as evidencing a high sex drive or libido. In some cases, cortisone therapy reduced clitoral hypersensitivity and spontaneous sex drive without reducing sexual responsiveness. Begin excerpt. It is noteworthy that none reported a post-treatment cessation of erotic sensitivity in the clitoral zone, only of erectile autonomy and hypersensitivity of the clitoris or of its amputated stump. What they lost, therefore, was that autonomous initiatory eroticism of the phallus, which seems to be so basic in the eroticism of men. The women were all unequivocally pleased to be relieved of clitoral hypersensitivity. It was the pleasure of being able to feel like a normal woman, several of them explained. Money, 1961 End of excerpt. These data underline the necessity of distinguishing between sexual responsiveness or consumatory behavior, and autonomous libido, or appetitive behavior. For example, among people such as the Mangayans and Trobrianders, women may typically have stronger sexual responses than men, but weaker sexual drives. Money sums up the evidence on eroticism among AGS women as follows. Begin excerpt. Some of these patients in adulthood, <clears throat> adulthood have reported experiences more typically reported by normal males than by females, namely erotic arousal with a strong pelvic component from the stimulation of visual and narrative perceptual material. Such arousal is more than the ordinary woman's arousal of romantic feeling and desire to be with her husband or boyfriend, with the ensuing possibility of tactile and kinesthetic arousal. Rather, it is arousal that is likely to be accompanied by erection of the clitoris, hypertrophied in the syndrome and masturbation or the willingness for sexual intercourse, even with a transitory partner. The imagery of the erotic thoughts and desires is all suitably feminine in keeping with the sex of rearing and the psychosexual identity. The unfeminine aspect of the experience applies only to the threshold and the frequency of arousal, and to the amount of sexual initiative that it might engender. The reaction has occurred in the treated as well as the untreated state of the syndrome but is attenuated by a treatment which consists of fem- feminizing clitoral surgery and hormonal correction with cortisone there is a possibility therefore of a residual androgenic effect even after the high fetal and childhood levels are regulated to normal the informative cases will be of those will be those of infants whose Excessive adrenal androgens were cortisone controlled from birth onward, but these patients are still too young to be valid informants. End of excerpt. Women who were masculinized in utero by progestins will also be of interest since they too will not have been exposed to excess androgens postnatally. Data on late treated AGS women suggest. That some aspects of human sexuality, such as object choice, result largely from postnatal experiences. But these data also suggest that the male's tendencies to be sexually aroused by visual stimuli, the specifically genital focus of male sexual arousal and relief, and the autonomous fantasizing initiatory ap- appetite of driving aspects of male sexuality result largely from interactions of the effects of prenatal androgens on the developing brain. The activating effects of postpubertal androgens on a brain already biased in a male direction and peripheral stimulation from the genitals. These aspects of male sexuality develop in a relatively innate fashion because the tendencies to be sexually aroused by the sight of females, to seek out opportunities to experience visual arousal and to desire sexual intercourse with arousing objects were generally adaptive for males in ancestral populations. The function of these male characteristics is to generate reproductive opportunities in a milieu in which such opportunities almost always were competitive. Nothing in male sexuality in so far as it contra- contrasts with female sexuality, cries out for a more intricate functional interpretation or hints of an adaptation to monogamy. Homosexuals. There is no reason to suppose that homosexuals differ systematically from heterosexuals in any way other than sexual object choice. As Tripp points out, homosexual is a behavioral category of individuals who are about as diffusely allied with each other as the world's smokers or coffee drinkers, and who are defined more by social opinion than by any fundamental consistency among themselves. I have argued that male sexuality and female sexuality are fundamentally different that sexual relationships between men and women compromise these differences if so the sex lives of homosexual men and women who need not compromise sexually with members of the opposite sex should provide dramatic insight into male sexuality and female sexuality in their undiluted states Homosexuals are the acid test for hypotheses about sex differences in sexuality. Evidence on sexual arousal by visual stimuli reveals striking male-female differences. A substantial industry produces pornographic books, magazines, and motion pictures for a male homosexual audience. But no pornography is produced for a lesbian audience. Moreover, while there's reason to believe that homosexual men comprise much of the audience for the photographs of nude men in Playgirl magazine, there is there is no reason to believe that lesbians exhibit a corresponding interest in magazines such as Playboy. On the contrary, begin excerpt. Most homosexual women laugh at or respond negatively to erotic pictures of women. Quote, the sexuality is so exaggerated, they say. They assume that the pictures are published for men and think it, quote, hysterically funny that men can be turned on by this, unquote. By way of proof, they point out that these photos are published in men's magazines not in magazines for women. You can be certain that if there were even a hint of potential market, some enterprising businessman should supply the product, but the market simply doesn't exist. End of excerpt. Heterosexual men are, of course, aware. the female sexuality portrayed in men's magazines reflects male fantasy more than female reality. Just as heterosexual women are aware that the happy endings of stories in romance magazines exist largely in the realm of fantasy. It is precisely the fantasy that that is appealing, but male homosexual pornography probably does reflect much of the reality of male sexuality. And it'd be interesting to know whether the photographs of women in women's magazines appeal erotically to lesbians. Fundamental male-female differences also are apparent in variety seeking. The search for new sexual partners is a striking feature of the male homosexual world. The most frequent form of sexual activity is the one-night stand, in which sex occurs, without obligation or commitment, between strangers. In one-night stands and longer liaisons, the basis of the male homosexual relationship usually is sexual activity and orgasm, and the focus is on the genitals sexual partners are found by cruising bars street corners hotel lobbies parks and public restrooms conversation and preliminaries are at a minimum and sex occurs almost immediately while more enduring relationships may develop from such encounters relationships nonetheless begin with sex the male gay homosexual bar in American Cities is a sexual marketplace where men go primarily to seek a sex partner for the night. Hooker writes that in The Gay Bar, quote, one may observe one of the most standardized and characteristic patterns of social interaction in the gay world, the meeting of strangers for the essential purpose of making an agreement to engage in sexual activity known as the one-night stand." Such liaisons often do not last a night. In a few minutes or hours, the individuals may be back in the bars again, cruising. Many American cities have steam baths that cater exclusively to homosexual men. A bath consists of individual rooms for private sexual activity and a large chamber for group sex in either place, there's little socializing and a great deal of anonymous sex. Fast, impersonal, anonymous sex between men in public restrooms is described by Hooker, Lesnoff, and Wesley. Contact also can be made in this way between a man and a male prostitute. Quote, the entrepreneur and his customer, in fact, can meet with little more that an exchange of nonverbal gestures transact their business with a minimum of verbal communication and part without a knowledge of one another's identity unquote. The meeting of strangers for the essential purpose of making an agreement to engage in sexual activity known as the one-night stand. Such liaisons often do not last a night. In a few minutes or hours, the individuals may be back in the bars again, cruising. Many American cities have steam baths that cater exclusively to homosexual men a bath consists of individual rooms for private sexual activity and a large chamber for group sex in either place there's little socializing and a great deal of anonymous sex fast impersonal anonymous sex between men in public restrooms is described by hooker and Sagi-Robbins. Contact also can be made in this way between a man and a male prostitute. Quote, The entrepreneur and his customer, in fact, can meet with little more than an exchange of nonverbal gestures, transact their business with a minimum of verbal communication, and part without a knowledge of one another's identity. Unquote. Male homosexuals are often said to be promiscuous if non-discrimination is the essence of promiscuity some homosexual men are indeed sometimes promiscuous for example the man who reported being reported being sodomized by 48 men in one evening in a gay bath presumably it was fairly indiscriminate Moreover, among homosexual men, as among heterosexual men, lust and ejaculation apparently can profoundly affect the perception of a sexual partner's attractiveness. A striking example is provided by the English novelist and playwright J.R. Ackerley, who describes in his autobiography a period of his life during which he suffered from ejaculatory incontinence. Ackerley writes that ejaculation, quote, put an end to my own pleasure before it had begun and with the expiry of my desire, which was never soon renewed. My interest in the situation, even in the person, causing me to behave inconsiderably to him, rather inconsiderately to him. I have not been above putting an abrupt end to affairs with new and not highly attractive boys in whose first close embrace and before taking off our clothes I had already had my own complete undisclosed satisfaction." But for a number of reasons it is misleading to characterize homosexual men as generally promiscuous. For one thing, as discussed in connection with the Coolidge Effect, the seeking of sexual variety is itself based on extraordinarily well-developed powers of discrimination. Hoffman notes that while most homosexual men are very interested in sexual activity, they do not necessarily engage in a great deal of it owing to the constant search for new partners and novelty is by no means the only criterion criterion of sexual desirability homosexual men often are extremely choosy and impersonal sex quote frequently entails a remarkable amount of discrimination. Even a person who never wants a second contact with any of his partners may spend much time carefully selecting each from dozens or even hundreds of possibilities. In fact, some of the most promiscuous individuals sustain considerable frustration, not from any lack of opportunity, but from being exceedingly selective. Unquote. Trip, 1975. Physical attractiveness is the most important determinant of sexual desirability. Hence the emphasis on physical condition, dress, and grooming among homosexual men. And a major determinant of physical attractiveness is youth. Ackerley writes quote, Instinctively, evading older men who seemed to desire me, I could not approach the younger ones whom I desired. Unquote. As John Ratchie has remarked quote, age is a monster figure of the gay world. Quote, Social class and status, on the other hand, appear to be relatively unimportant determinants of sexual desirability. Finally, Tripp notes that a brief sexual encounter can be affectionate and romantic, a kind of telescoped love affair. Quote, each contact may proceed so rapidly from meeting to parting as to look at the casual observer like a leaf in the wind but to the participants, each experience may be intensely romantic. Unquote. In fact, Tripp, 1975, and Hoffman point out that for many men, one of the primary attractions of impersonal sex is that it allows each participant to imagine he is having sex with the ideal partner, a fantasy which may be vulnerable even to a small amount of Preliminary conversation. The human male's ability to fall rapidly in love with an idealized fantasy, created solely from the data of physical appearance, is not unknown to heterosexual women who may capitalize on it or fear and mistrust it. The difference between men and women in this respect perhaps has never been more incisively drawn. Than it is in Renee Neri's musings in her admirer in Colette's novel, The Vagabond. Beginning of excerpt How is it that he who is in love with me is not in the least disturbed that he knows me so little? He clearly never gives that a thought, and his one idea is first to reassure me and afterwards to conquer me. For if he has very quickly learnt to hide his desire and subdue his looks and his voice when he speaks to me, if he pretends, cunning as an animal, to have forgotten that he wants to possess me, neither does he show any eagerness to find out what I am like, to question me or read my character, and I notice that he pays more attention to the play of light on my hair than to what I'm saying. End of excerpt. Among male homosexuals, friends are not usually sexual partners. Sex rarely occurs within the social group. And a common but not universal goal is to find a permanent partner. In describing his unsuccessful lifelong search for The ideal friend Ackerley, 1968, remarks Though two or three hundred young men were to pass through my hands in the course of years, I did not consider myself promiscuous but monogamous. It was all a run of bad luck. In an eight year study of 30 homosexual men who were not seeking psychological help, showed no signs of psychological disturbances, and were gainfully employed. Hooker, 1965, found that 27 out of 30 sought stable dyadic relationships that would include sex, intimacy, love, and affection, but only four had sustained an exclusive sexual relationship for as long as two years. Weinberg and Williams report that 37% of their sample of 1,057 1, American homosexual men have had a relationship in which sex was primarily, but not necessarily exclusively, restricted to one person for more than one year. Son and Shine 1968 found that the desire for a permanent sexual partner was more common among homosexual men over 30, younger informants said they preferred extended encounters to a permanent relationship. Older homosexual men are much less successful in finding sex partners, and this may be partly responsible for their interest in developing a permanent relationship. A few homosexual men are able to maintain long-term monogamous relationships and such relationships may have been underestimated in the literature but clearly the majority revert to having sex with strangers as sexual interest in their partner wanes while maintaining the original living arrangements. Trip 1975 Eventually most seek all sexual activity outside of their relationship with their partner. The instability of sexual relationships among male homosexuals has been frequently remarked. Although homosexual men like most people usually want to have intimate relationships, such relationships are difficult to maintain largely owing to the male desire for sexual variety, the unprecedented opportunity to satisfy this desire in a world of men and the male tendency towards sexual jealousy. Tripp 1975 suggests that long-term male homosexual couples owe the stability of their relationship to their understanding, That sexual intensity with a single partner wanes, and that an appetite for new partners is inevitable. In the following passage, Tripp implies that sexual jealousy can sometimes be overcome because of each partner's intuitive insight into the peculiarities of male sexuality. Begin excerpt, the sophisticated male homosexual couple, usually having gained that sophistication through previous relationships, tend to anticipate the problem and build a bulwark against it before their initial fascination with each other begins to subside. They may carefully avoid setting up a fidelity contract with each other, and gear their expectations to include sexual contacts on the side, contacts in which an emotional investment in any new partner is deliberately avoided. Often more inventive arrangements are made. These may include threesomes in which one or both partners bring home a person who is shared in bed but who is not permitted to intrude on the basic relationship. There may be foursomes or orgy dates or conservative variations on the common heterosexual solutions, such as the spoken or unspoken arrangement that any side contact is to go unmentioned or that almost any side contact is alright if it is always mentioned. Not infrequently, partners who have been together for some time and who are secure in their affection go considerably further. Each may bring home partners who are not to be shared. Sometimes one or both people's other partners have both, have hot, short-range romances, and are discussed at home, even with the amusement and a certain seasoned benevolence. While the possible arrangements vary considerably. Most have recovered several common features in common. There tends to be an above-board recognition by both partners of the value of what is fleeting as well as of what is enduring. Well, that's what is enduring, along with the realization that these appetites are far safer if not placed in competition. Like homosexual men, lesbians tend to place a great deal of importance on sex and sex related activities. Although, unlike men, their sexual activities are not focused on the genitals. In his six-year study of lesbians in Philadelphia, Headblum, 1973, asked 65 informants about orgasm. Of the 62 women who answered the question, all reported they had been orgasmic in homosexual relations. Hedblom also reports a greater average frequency of sexual activity among lesbians than has been reported for heterosexual women. Indeed, the sexual activities of homosexuals of both sexes appear to be especially intense, varied, and satisfying trip 1975 writes that when two men are excited and unrestrained in their sexual interaction the fire that is fed from both sides often does whip up levels of eroticism that are rarely reached elsewhere Unquote. and quote among lesbians Sex is geared toward a diversified... Emphasis on what nearly all women consider most important, a buildup starting with peripheral stimulation that eventually concentrates on genital actions last, if at all. But lesbians form lasting, intimate, paired relationships far more frequently and easily than male homosexuals do stable relationships are overwhelmingly preferred to any other and monogamy is the ideal in headblum's 1972 study 64 of 65 informants said that they preferred a stable relationship and 71 percent had had a homosexual marriage Kinsey et al. 1953 reports that of males who had had any homosexual experience 16% had 21 <clears throat> 21 or more male partners while no females had more than 20 female partners and only 3% had 11 to 20 partners Sagir and Robbins report that only 15% of the lesbians, but 94% of the male homosexuals in their sample, had more than 15 sex partners. Although Sagir, in their example, had more than 15 sex partners, had more. Though Sagir and Robbins report that the 57 lesbians in their sample were more likely than unmarried heterosexual controls to have had short-term sexual relationships the lesbians who were more likely to have had long-term relationships Reese 1969 compared 226 lesbian women With 233 heterosexual women matched for age... In conclusion, available data on the sex lives of contemporary homosexuals may have far-reaching implications for understanding human sexuality. These data imply that male sexuality and female sexuality differ much more profoundly than might be inferred from observing only the heterosexual world. That there is a substantial male homosexual market for pornography and no lesbian market whatsoever suggests that the tendency to be sexually aroused by quote-unquote objectified visual stimuli is simply a male tendency not as is often claimed an expression of contempt for women similarly The tremendous importance of physical attractiveness and youth in determining sexual desirability among homosexual men implies that these are relatively innate male criteria. Heterosexual men tend to see women as sex objects and to desire young, beautiful women. Homosexual men tend to see men As sex objects and to desire young handsome men but women whether heterosexual or homosexual are much less likely to be sexually aroused by objectified visual stimuli or to experience sexual arousal primarily on the basis of cosmetic qualities knowledge of a potential partners character even be via brief conversation can sometimes diminish a male's sexual interest by interfering with his fantasy but a female's sexual interest can not only not only is not diminished by but usually requires both some knowledge of the partner's character and some prior emotional investment among men sex sometimes results in intimacy Among women, intimacy sometimes results in sex. The tendency to experience profound changes in perception of following orgasm, to focus on the genitals in sexual activity, and to desire the enjoyable sexual variety, also appears to be male proclivities. were designed by selection primarily to take advantage of rare opportunities and to motivate the effort required to compete for scarce resources. Ultimate causation has been obscured by the assumptions that sexual impulses and desires were designed to promote human happiness or to grease the wheels of marriage or society quote-unquote innate sex differences in sexuality are extreme because however similar their typical parental investments may be males and females differ enormously in their minimum investments thus encounters completely scarce reproductive In previous chapters, I argue that the ultimate causation of these male-female differences is relatively simple and straightforward if one assumes that sexual impulses and desires were designed by selection primarily to take advantage of rare opportunities and to motivate the effort required to compete for scarce resources ultimate causation has been obscured by the assumptions that sexual impulses and desires were designed to promote human happiness or to grease the wheels of marriage or society. Quote-unquote, innate sex differences in sexuality are extreme because however similar their typical parental investment is by Usually in requires both some knowledge of the partner's character, some prior emotional involvement. Uh, Similar their typical to the record, as may be, males and females differ enormously in their minimum investments and thus encounter completely different reproductive opportunities and constraints. To call certain male female differences in sexuality, quote unquote, relatively innate, does not contribute much toward their approximate explication, but it does suggest that inquiry into the effects of prenatal and post-pubertal testosterone on the male's brain are likely to be profitable lines of research and furthermore that some curb curb to call certain male-female differences in sexuality. Male-female differences in sexuality often are said to result from 1. The differential access of men and women to economic resources and political power. 2. Different norms of sexual behavior for men and women. Throughout the Pleistocene, boys and girls must have been reared differently, but it is most unlikely that these different rearing conditions were the sole developmental mechanism responsible for sex differences in sexuality. The data presented in previous chapters and summarized in the last chapter suggest some developmental fixity in sexuality. There are no myths of sleeping males who require princesses' kiss to awaken them. If males are still dozing at puberty, they are awakened by nature. Very likely, many of these sex differences would prove to be innate without apologetic quotation marks if the environment were held constant that is males and females exposed to identical environmental conditions during ontogeny would develop different sexual behaviors attitudes and feelings This does not necessarily mean that it would be impossible to rear boys and girls so that they developed identical sexualities, but simply that identical sexualities would not result from identical rearing conditions. Because human sexual behavior is determined less by genes and gonadal hormones and more by learning than is the sexual behavior of any other animal species human sexuality is often said to be released or emancipated from genes and hormones culture and society the great emancipators have marched through the evolving cerebral cortex to sexual freedom but culture and society are not entities They are the cumulative material and symbolic products of individual human beings, no two of whom had identical reproductive interests. Plasticity is a double-edged sword. The more flexible an organism is, the greater the variety of maladaptive as well as adaptive behaviors it can develop the more teachable it is the more fully it can profit from the experiences of its ancestors and associates and the more it risks being exploited by its ancestors and associates the greater its capacity for learning morality the more worthless superstitions as well as traditions of social wisdom it can acquire the more cooperatively interdependent the members of a group become The greater is their collective power and the more fulsome are the opportunities for individuals to manipulate one another the more sophisticated language becomes the more subtle are the lies as well as the truths that can be told hence i argue that the evolutionary elaboration of the cerebral cortical superstructure that makes human plasticity possible entailed a concomitant either a concomitant elaboration of a non-plastic motivational substructure. If selection has always been potent at the level of the individual, individuals must have innate mechanisms, probably best conceived as emotional-slash-motivational mechanisms to recognize and look after their own reproductive, quote-unquote, interests. Thus, humans cannot be merely passive vehicles by which society and culture perpetuate themselves, whether society and culture are understood as systems, as they often are, or as collections of discrete components, as Dawkins, 1976, understands them. Dawkins argues, that bits of culture are like viruses self-replicating parasites on human beings. But this analogy shows precisely why this view must be incomplete. In environments containing pathogenic viruses, selection favors the most resistant individuals. Unlike most other mammals, humans mate year-round. Unlike all other mammals, human females conceal rather than advertise ovulation, unlike all other mammals. Human reproductive competition occurred in social milieus of enormous complexity. It was believed it was i believe the complexity of sexual opportunity and constraint in natural human environments that made adaptive, a human psyche uniquely informed by sexuality. That individual reproductive, quote-unquote, interests must be in some degree conflict with one another may account for the intensity of human sexual emotions. The pervasive interests in other people's sex lives, the frequency with which sex is a subject of gossip, The universal seeking of privacy for sexual intercourse, the secrecy and deception that surround sexual activities and make the scientific study of sex so difficult, the universal existence of sexual laws or rules, and the fact that in our own society, quote-unquote, morals, has come to refer almost exclusively to sexual matters neither adaptation to monogamous pair bonds nor a history of non-competitive promiscuity can easily account for the above facts about human sexuality and these facts also constitute a challenge to group selection theories and to theories in which society is a source of human emotion The relations of society and culture to organic evolution are likely to be debated in the biological and social sciences for many years to come. Even at present, however, views of society that ignore organic evolution entirely can be seen to be inadequate, at least with respect to sexuality. It's generally believed, for example, that young women tend to be more sexually attractive than older women. But what is the source of this belief, and why is it maintained? Does a powerful secret cabal of 20-year-old women control propaganda? Do men promulgate this belief in order to reduce the competition for middle-aged women, whom they lust after in their hearts? In actuality, if one considers such concepts as the dirty old man, statutory rape, and psychosexual immaturity, it seems fairly clear that young women are perceived as attractive in spite of, not because of, normative and prescriptive rhetoric. As discussed in Chapter 2, many social scientists, and probably most economists and psychologists, view society and culture as the cumulative products of individuals pursuing their own interests. But it has proved difficult to define self-interest, in a way that is neither circular nor dependent on intuition, and to specify the mechanisms by which individuals initiate, perpetuate, and change social forms. Although Bloch and Brown argue that inaccurate notions of time, society, and history are tools for perpetuating inequalities, these writers are appropriately vague about the actual mechanisms involved. Bloch writes, that the perpetuation of institutionalized hierarchy is what the cognitive system that he calls social structure is about. And Brown calls attention to the correlation between quality of historiography and openness of social stratification. But he does not argue that powerful individuals in hereditarily stratified societies necessarily either consciously receive that accurate history would endanger their positions or make conscious efforts to suppress accurate history, though they may. One reason the concept of self-interest is so difficult may be that, for the most part, self-interest is perceived and pursued unconsciously, making conspiracies without conspirators possible. Obviously, selection could not have opposed awareness of abstract scientific notions like inclusive fitness any more than it could have opposed awareness of the atomic structure of matter. But even if selfish and altruistic are understood in their ordinary senses, Alexander's argument is not compelling. Our typically keen insight into other people's motives implies intense Selection for social perceptiveness in times past, among pre-literate peoples, reproductively successful headmen seem to be uncommonly politically astute and socially perceptive. But our failure to note that social perceptiveness is grounded in projection does not necessarily imply that selection actually disfavored self-insight. Carl Lashley pointed out that we are conscious primates of the results, not the processes of thought. Our ability to make almost any kind of judgment or calculation far exceeds our ability to understand how we make them. To know others is an adaptive necessity. To know thyself is an acquired taste. The sex differences in human sexuality discussed in this book originated in the greater variability of male than of female reproductive success during the course of evolutionary history. One might therefore expect male sexuality to be more plastic and variable than female sexuality. For example, high and low ranking males might be expected to pursue different reproductive strategies. Indeed, Crook suggests that among non-human primates, high-ranking males freely use scarce resources such as estrous females, while low-ranking males adopt behavioral subterfuges to gain access to these resources. Kaufman, 1965, characterizes some low-ranking male rhesus monkeys as opportunistic because they mate furtively, and in in Concealment, and he notes that a low-ranking male may copulate with a female's regular partner, is temporarily out of sight. Trevers, 1972, writes, quote, if males within a relatively monogamous species are in fact adapted to pursue mixed strategy, the optimal is likely to differ from different males. Psychology might well benefit from attempting to view human sexual plasticity as an adaptation to permit the individuals, other the individual to choose the mixed strategy best suited to local conditions and his own attribute attributes and I suggested that the human males desire for sexual variety might vary to some extent with opportunity opportunities to satisfy this desire nevertheless contrary to expectation the data on human sexuality indicate that the range of variation in the female far exceeds the range of variation in the male. Some women in Kinsey's sample had never been aroused erotically, while others were aroused almost daily. Of those who had been aroused, some responded only mildly to tactile or psychologic stimulation, visual and narrative stimuli and fantasy, while others responded instantaneously and intensely and reached orgasm quickly. Some who had been aroused by tactile stimuli had never been aroused by psychologic stimuli, while others could reach orgasm from psychologic stimuli alone. Quote, There were females in the sample who had been more responsive to psychologic stimulation than any male we've known. Unquote. Although the women in Kinsey's sample were rarely, very rarely were interested in sexual variety per se, a few were as interested as any man. And in cross-cultural perspective, among some peoples, there is no concept of female orgasm. While among others, all women are said to experience multiple orgasms. Female sexuality seems to be generally less rigidly channeled than male sexuality. At swingers' parties in the United States, for example, over 90% of the presumably heterosexual women find that they enjoy sex with other women while male swingers almost never have sex with other men. Recall too that AGS women were unequivocally happy about the changes cortisone therapy induced in their sexuality. They said that they liked being able to feel like normal women but perhaps they also enjoyed the increased freedom from reflex-like responses to external stimuli and from internal sexual pressures. Neither their clitoral sensitivity nor presumably their capacity for sexual pleasure were impaired by cortisone. In essence, they lost sexual compulsion without losing sexual possibility. Because the sexual variability of the human female far exceeds that of the male, it is harder for women than for men to understand intuitively the sexual experiences and feelings of some members of their own sex. Begin excerpt. Because there is such wide variation in the sexual responsiveness and frequencies of overt activity among females, many females are incapable of understanding other females. There are fewer males who are incapable of understanding understanding other males. Even the sexually least responsive of the males can comprehend something of the meaning of the frequent and continuous arousal which some other males experience. But the female who goes through life or for any long period of years with little or no experience in orgasm finds it very difficult to comprehend the female who is capable of several orgasms every time she has sexual contact. who may be who may on occasion have a score or more orgasms in an hour to the third or more of the females who have rarely been aroused by psychologic stimuli it may seem fantastic to believe that there are females who come to orgasm as the result of sexual fantasy without any physical stimulation of their genitalia or of any other part of their body. End of excerpt. Perhaps female sexual variability accounts for the fact that one woman psychiatrist can argue on the basis of the female's capacity for multiple orgasms. female, that human females are sexually insatiable, while a second woman psychiatrist can question the very existence of multiple orgasms. some of the sexual variability of the human female probably represents adaptation for example although men and women are equally capable of experiencing intense sexual jealousy of a spouse learning may play a greater role in determining the circumstances in which females experience jealousy that is Sexual jealousy may be a facultative adaptation in the human female and an obligate adaptation in the human male. The probable ultimate explanation for this sex difference is that it has always been adaptive for men to be sexually jealous of their wives, while in some polygynous marriages it has not been adaptive for women to be sexually jealous of their husbands. Furthermore, husbands' extramarital adventures have not necessarily constituted threats to their wives' reproductive success. Hence, females are adapted to learn to discriminate, threatening from non-threatening adultery. Similarly, criteria for evaluating sexual attractiveness probably developed in a more innate fashion in the human male than in the human female. For example, certain physical characteristics, especially skin quality, universally correlate with female age, and males very likely have innate psychological mechanisms for detecting and responding to these characteristics. Whereas, the evaluation of male status and prowess presumably depends more on learning. But facultative adaptations cannot, in my opinion, begin to account for the sexual variability of the human female. The fact of female sexual plasticity which makes variability possible is not in itself evidence for adaptation to exhibit variable sexual behavior. The enormous range of sexual variation observed among females may be primarily an artifact of artificial post-agricultural habitats. If one adopts Williams's dictum, quote, adaptation is a special and onerous concept that should be used only where it is really necessary, unquote. Available evidence does not justify the conclusion that the female orgasm is an adaptation. Parsimoniously interpreted, the data suggests that with sufficient clitoral stimulation any female mammal can experience orgasm, but that sufficient stimulation rarely or never occurs in a state of nature. With respect to humans, what happened in a state of nature is obviously conjectural. But since amongst most people's sexual intercourse is completely primarily in terms of the man's passions and pleasures, it is a reasonable hypothesis that the human female's capacity for orgasm is no more an adaptation than is the ability to learn to read. If, If throughout most of human evolutionary history, the potentials of female sexuality were very rarely realized, these potentials would have been largely invisible to natural selection, and this may account for the astonishing sexual plasticity of the human female. There are, I believe, several general implications in the line of reasoning pursued here. First, data, not theory and not analogies, with non human animals reveal what human beings are like. Second, evolutionary analyses must consider the question of the environments for which programs have been designed. However, speculative such consideration may be Structures, behaviors, and psyches that develop in unnatural environments may not have ultimate causes at all. Third, the tendencies to equate natural and good and to find dignity in biological adaptation can only impede understanding of ultimate causation and distort perceptions at non-human animals. pre-literate peoples and history. Finally, the potentials of a biological mechanism are not necessary by constrained law. Similarly, criteria for evaluating sexual attractiveness probably develop in a more innate fashion in the human male than in the human female. For for example, certain physical characteristics, especially skin quality, universally correlate with female age, and males very likely have innate psychological mechanisms for detecting and responding to these characteristics, whereas the evolution of beauty Male status rather male status and progress. Prowess presumably depends on becoming I believe several general implications in the line of reasoning pursued here. First, data, not theory, and not analogies with non human animals reveal what human beings are like. Second, evolutionary analyses. Must consider the question of the environments for which the organisms have been designed, however specula- however speculative such consideration may be, structures, behaviours, and psyches that develop an un- unnatural environments may not have ultimate causes at all. Third, the tendencies to equate natural and good and to find dignity in biological adaptation can only impede understanding of ultimate causation and distort perceptions of non-human animals, pre-literate peoples, and history. Finally, the potentials of a biological mechanism are not necessarily constrained by and cannot necessarily be predicted from the purposes for which the mechanism was designed by natural selection perhaps it is not excessively naive to hope that a creature capable of perceiving the plowshare in the sword is also capable of freeing itself from the nightmare of the past.